This episode of History on Fire is brought to you by Luminary Media. Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Gosa History on Fire. In the year 9, common era, things were going great in Rome. The city was the center of the Western world at the time, and people there were ready to celebrate the victory in squashing a revolt in Pannonia. So things could not go any better. Much like what had happened in 1876 in the United States when the nation was patting itself on the back over its progress after a hundred years since the Declaration of Independence, only to receive the news that Lakota and Cheyenne warriors had crushed the U.S. Army at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, the celebratory mood in Rome was ruined when news arrived that something terrible had happened in Germany. A special courier had arrived carrying a package for Emperor Augustus. When the Emperor opened it, he found himself staring at the severed head of his friend and general, Publius Quinctilius Varus. That was enough to tell Augustus that Varus' time as the first officially appointed governor of Germany had really not ended well. The news accompanying the head were if at all possible, even worse. Three whole legions had entered a dark German forest and had been swallowed by them, never to find their way out. After this moment, Augustus will spend months in mourning. Weird description of him going around his palace, tearing off his clothes, not shaving, Literally, not figuratively, literally headbutting the wall and shouting, Quinctilius Varus, give me back my legions. By that point, Augustus was 70 years old and had been the head of the most powerful state in the Western world for almost 40 years now. He was the first emperor of Rome. Decades of civil wars had claimed the lives of every major politician that the Eternal City had produced in recent memory, from Julius Caesar to Pompey, from Cato and Cicero to Mark Antony. And no matter how great they had all been, they had all drowned in the blood of the civil wars. Only he had survived it all, and had emerged as the undisputed master of Rome. Only Augustus had pulled this off. He had triumphed there where other great men had failed, He had once boasted that before him, the capital was made of bricks, but now he had recreated it into a city of marble. He was Augustus, 
the most powerful man in the West and possibly in the entire world. The twilight of his life was not supposed to turn out like this. His last few years in this world were supposed to allow him to sit back and bask in his own greatness. He was Augustus. He had not accomplished everything he had to find himself at this point, you know, some cranky old man with no one truly close to him, since his best friends had all died already, and he had banished his own kids for rebelling against his stern morality. And he had definitely not climbed to the pinnacle of power just to find himself having to hold in his lap the head of one of his top generals, murdered by some lowly forest barbarians at the edge of the empire. So you can forgive the poor old guy for overreacting a little bit. You know, he declared a state of emergency. He had the German troops who were part of the emperor's personal bodyguard. They were dismissed and reassigned far away from Rome, just in fear that they may be joining some German uprising against Roman power. You know, the fear is that they would betray and they would be way too close for comfort to the emperor himself. With the usual flamboyant stories that Roman historians tell us, and who knows which ones are these are true and which ones are exaggerations, but guys like Cassius Dio, for example, they tell us that a lightning strike landed on the Temple of Mars in Campus Martius. There were plagues of locusts, there were comets appearing, you know, all probably made up stuff, but they reflected the mood. You know, they are the classic uh, wonders and portents and things that people report anytime something dramatic just happened historically. You know, we saw it when we did the uh, Aztec uh, or Mexica, however you want to call them, the Mexica Spanish series. We see them, you know, in many historical events, the assassination of Julius Caesar, all these things where local historians report all this wild natural phenomenon, almost implying that even the earth itself is shaking because of these uh, dramatic changes that are happening in human history. Regardless, you know, let's say it's exaggeration, let's say that none of that happened, that still underscores how heavily what had happened in Germany was felt in Rome. Augustus also quickly got busy raising legions to protect Italy. You know, his expectation was this could not just be something terrible that happened out there, this could be some, the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire. Now, that wasn't the case, it wasn't the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire would still have several centuries ahead, but that tells you how serious what had happened was. Let me turn to the words of one of the most famous Roman historians of this time, covering this time period rather, Suetonius. Let's go to his words. He, meaning Augustus, he suffered but two severe and ignominious defeats, those of Lollius and Varus, both of which were in Germany. Of these, the former was more humiliating than serious, but the latter was almost fatal, since three legions were cut to pieces with their generals, his lieutenants, and all the auxiliaries. When the news of this came, Augustus ordered that watch be kept by night throughout the city to prevent an outbreak of rebellion, 
and he prolonged the terms of the governors of the provinces, that the allies might be held to their allegiance by experienced men with whom they were acquainted. He also vowed great gains to Jupiter Optimus Maximus, in case the condition of the Commonwealth should improve, a thing which had been done in the Cimbric and Marsic Wars. In fact, they say that he was so greatly affected that for several months in succession, he cut neither his beard nor his hair, and sometimes he would dash his head against the door, crying, Quintilius Varus, give me back my legions. And he would serve the day of the disaster each year as one of sorrow and mourning. So here you get Suetonius, who give you a vibe for what had happened. He's one of the sources that tell us about this. But what exactly had happened in Germany to the three legions mentioned by Suetonius? Some survivors from the disasters had told their stories to a demoralized Roman audience. But it wouldn't be until a few years later, when new legions would reach the site where Varus' army had met its fate. And what they found there made the blood chill in their veins. This new military force was under the leadership of Drusus' son, Germanicus. I'm going to mention Drusus in a little bit, so you'll be familiar with who this guy is. His son was named Germanicus, the name being an honorary title picked up by his family because of his father's triumph over Germanic tribes in the past. Germanicus' mission was simple, at least in theory. Avenge Rome's honor and let the tribes know that you don't get to defy Rome without paying a price. Here is what the Roman historian Tacitus, one of our main sources for this whole tale, here is how he narrates what happened. So let's go in the words of Tacitus. Germanicus sends Cecina with 40 Roman cohorts to distract the enemy through the lands of the Bructeri to the river Amisia while Commander Pido led the cavalry by the territories of the Frisians. Germanicus personally led four legions sailing through the lakes, and the infantry, cavalry, and fleet met simultaneously at the river already mentioned. Lucius Thirtinius was dispatched by Germanicus with a flying column and routed the Bructeri. The Bructeri, by the way, is one of the German tribes that we're talking about. He routed the Bructeri as they were busy burning their possessions in preparation for fleeing. While the killing and looting was in progress, he found the eagle of the 19th legion, which had been lost with Varus. I'm going to mention this again and again, but keep in mind that the eagle was the legion standard, and this was supposed to represent the very soul of the legion. He was symbolically very important, yeah, I mean, more symbolically than anything, because that's just a piece of metal that they were carrying, but it's like, symbolically, was a big deal. Like, you did not lose the eagle. The eagle was the soul of the legion, and so to recover the eagle was a very important thing. In any case, back to Tacitus. The troops were then marched to the fortest frontier of the Bructeri, and all the country between the rivers Amisia and Lupia was ravaged. They were not far from the Teutoburg forest, in which the remains of Varus and his legions were said to be lying, unburied. At this point Germanicus was moved with an intense desire to pay the last honor 
to the soldiers and their general. While the whole army were present was inspired to compassion by the thought of their kinsfolk and friends, and indeed, of the calamities of wars and the lot of mankind. After sending Cecina forward to explore the secret forest passes and to throw bridges and causeways over the flooded marshes and treacherous plains, they visited those mournful places with their horrible sights and associations. So what Tacitus is telling us is that after wreaking havoc among the local tribes, Germanicus and his men were finally close to the places where various military disasters had taken place. Here Tacitus continues his story, with the haunting images facing Germanicus' men. So here we go. Varus' first camp, with its wide circumference and the measurement of its central space, clearly indicated the handiwork of three legions. Further on, a half-ruined rampart and shallow ditch indicated where the last survivors had made their stand. The field was strewn with the remains of men. On the open ground were the whitening bones, scattered where they had fled, heaped up where they had rallied. When I read this stuff, I kind of picture it as a CSI type of moment. If you have never watched the TV show CSI, you're missing out. I kind of imagine Germanicus hearing the distant noise of desperate battle and having some flashes in his mind of what may have been. It's hard to walk into a place where you see bones all around you, the remains of this battle long gone, and not have your mind's eye going to imagine what led to this point, what created what I'm witnessing here, you know, I'm, what, I'm watching the aftermath, what it must have been like when it happened. Tacitus continues. Bits of weapons and horses' limbs lay about, and human heads were fixed to tree trunks. In the groves nearby were barbaric altars, where the Germans had laid the tribunes and the senior centurions and sacrificed them. Some survivors of the disaster, when escaped from the battle or the captivity that followed, showed their commander where the legates had fallen, where the eagles had been captured, where Varus had received his first wound, and where he had died by a blow from his own miserable hand. They also pointed out the raised ground from which Arminius had given a speech to his army and they pointed to all the gallows and torture pits for the prisoners, and the arrogance with which he insulted the standards and the eagles. So now we have Roman soldiers under Germanicus roaming around the places where thousands of their fellow legionaries had met a terrible destiny. The evidence of the disaster was all around them. Endless fields of bones, Altars stained with the blood of the centurions captured and sacrificed. This was less of a field of battle and more the site of a wholesale slaughter. And again, Tacitus, 
And so the Roman army, now on the spot, six years after the disaster, in grief and anger, began to bury the bones of the three legions, not a soldier knowing whether he was interring the relics of a relative or a stranger, but looking upon all of them as family and of their own blood, while their anger rose higher than ever against the enemy. While this is going on, Germanicus broke with customs by being the first one to throw dirt on the bones of the dead and beginning the burial ceremony. Now, how is he breaking with custom? Well, because it was highly irregular to do this, since as a high-ranking member of the Roman priesthood, he was not allowed to come close to touching corpses, something which, incidentally, the current emperor, Augustus' successor, Tiberius, criticized him for. So with all this in mind, I think you have a decent setup for where this story is going. I'm going to now go back in time and take us back to the genesis of this whole story. Before I do that, however, there's one thing I like to mention. Personally, I seem to really be fascinated with stories of tribes clashing with the empire. Not entirely sure why. Maybe because I just love some good underdog story. Possibly because I watched Star Wars a lot when I was a little kid, and so, you know, a battle between the ragged underdogs and the Empire always captured my imagination. Maybe it's because I dig Conan the Barbarian, and I dig that contrast between the Cimmerian savagery described in positive terms by Robert E. Howard and the values of so-called civilized folks. I don't know what it is, but in any case, this is the kind of story that gets me... You know, I've been reading and reading and reading, probably way more than I needed to actually produce this episode, but I'm just fascinated by this particular tale. You know, I picture this army in the forest and you start hearing tribal drums and war cries, and that's when you know that things are about to get intense. This is a story that, at least in its most romanticized versions, is about the conflicts between tribes and state, you know, the people of the forest and the people of the cities, sacred groves and state-sponsored temples, the brave individualism of warriors and the deadly discipline of the legions, wannabe conquerors and people desperately resisting being conquered. This is really usually the kind of tale that has appeared many times in history, but typically is pitting European colonizers against indigenous peoples, whether in Africa or in the Americas or in just about anywhere else. But in this case, the role of the so-called quote-unquote savage and the role of the quote-unquote civilized are both played by Europeans, even though clearly the term European barely had any meaning 2,000 years ago. For the Romans, Germany was the edge of their empire. And since they had come to conquer much of Europe, plus good chunks of Africa and the Middle East through constant expansion, being on the edge of the empire meant that you were next on the menu. You know, they were coming for you. There was no mistake in that. The information about the Germany of those days, or the days prior to these events, ran extremely thin. Since Germanic tribes were not exactly known for their high literacy rate, 
so most of the information about them came from the Romans trying to conquer them. One book in particular focused almost exclusively, actually, forget almost, exclusively on them. So we're going to spend some time going through some of its key points in order to provide proper context. This whole episode actually is primarily context, you know, the, this first part, this is going to be a two-part series on this tale. This first part is about really just laying the groundwork and understanding the full context, and then in the next one we dive deep into the specifics of this story. I tend to do that a lot, you know, in many times when I have a multi-part series, whether it's two episodes, three episodes, four episodes, the first one is usually just laying the groundwork, and then things get progressively juicier as you go deeper into the story. So in any case, the Roman historian Tacitus, who I mentioned already in a couple of quotes before, he wrote a booklet called Germania around the year 98 Common Era. His information was overwhelmingly second-hand, but it's not like most Roman historians had access to anything better, and neither do we when it comes to sources about the people of Germany over 2,000 years ago. So, while this is not ideal, this is the best we have. Centuries of Christian crackdown against pagan authors led to the fact that all copies of the Germania, along with countless other works by classical writers, were lost during the Middle Ages. But eventually, as the ban on pre-Christian works began to ease up, a single manuscript of the Germania was found in some dusty library in 1425. And this discovery was actually going to have a huge impact on history. Some people wish the enthusiasm for book burning had been a bit more thorough and that no copy of Tacitus' work had survived the bonfires. Now, why would anybody wish that? I mean, don't we like to have knowledge from the past? And, you know, normally, yes, that's actually a terrible how much of the classical work we have lost during this period of persecution. However, the problem is that this particular booklet, the Germania, would eventually become a favorite for German nationalists, and it would turn into the foundations for many of the myths forming Nazi ideology. There's an Italian historian, Arnaldo Momigliano, for example, spoke of the Germania as one of the most dangerous books ever written. But we're not here to discuss how this ancient Roman book affected the cultural development of Hitler's minions. Rather, while that could be an interesting discussion, what we're going to do here is just look at what it can tell us about life in ancient Germany. Before we dive into some of the things that Tacitus tells us about what he called Germania, let's consider the word itself. It's almost certain that the people he called Germans didn't really identify as Germans. They identified with whatever tribe they were from. And these tribes were regularly at war with one another. It's kind of like, in many ways, it's the same as the terms like American Indian or Native American. Now, they really didn't mean a whole lot centuries ago because tribes had no common sense of native identity they just you were Lakota or you were Hopi or you were Cheyenne or you know you belong to a particular tribe there was no generic sense of a common identity similarly here you know the so-called Germans were divided in hundreds of different tribes alliances were constantly made and broken 
and there was little to no sense of a common German identity. One theory suggests that a particular tribe was named German, and Romans began using the, that same word for all the people in the country to the east of Gaul, which Gaul would be modern-day, most, mostly modern-day France and a few pieces of other states around it. Now, that's a good theory. Maybe, maybe not. You know, nobody knows for sure. Some of the information that we know about the tribes in that part of the world was that they did not live in cities or even wall towns. They lived in small villages linked together in some wider tribal confederation. In terms of making a living, they practiced a mixed economy based on farming, raising animals, and hunting. Caesar, yes, that Caesar, the one and only Gaius Julius Caesar, wrote that Germans, I quote, are much engaged in hunting, which circumstance must, by the nature of their food, be their daily exercise and the freedom of their life. This emphasis on Germans being big-time hunters, not exactly true. You know, in reality, Germans farmed quite a bit. Barley, oats, wheat, stuff like that. They also raised cows, pigs, and sheep. Not so much about goats and chicken. They had lots of beef. They consumed lots of dairy products. Yes, they did some hunting, but that was definitely not the main part of their economy. In one of the passages most favored by the Nazis, Tacitus wrote that physically, the Germanic people seemed to be a quote-unquote pure ethnic group that did not mix with others. His line of reasoning for this is actually kind of funny. He said that nobody would be stupid enough to choose to migrate to a climate as horrible as what you would find in Germany. And because of that, because nobody would want to migrate there, this had guaranteed the pure blood of Germanic peoples. I quote from Tacitus now, he writes, As to the Germans themselves, I think it probable that they are indigenous, and a very little foreign blood has been introduced either by invasions or by friendly dealings with neighboring peoples. For in former times, it was not by land but on ship that would-be immigrants arrived and the limitless ocean that lies beyond the coasts of Germany defies intruders and is seldom visited by ships from our part of the world. Considering the dangers of that wild and unknown sea, who would have chosen to leave Asia Minor, North Africa or Italy, to go to Germany with its forbidding landscapes and unpleasant climate? A country that is thankless to till and dismal to behold for anyone who was not born and bred there. So clearly Tacitus was not a big fan of the way Germany looked, but in any case. For myself, I accept the view that the peoples of Germany have never contaminated themselves by intermarriage with foreigners, but remain of pure blood, distinct and unlike any other nation. One result of this is that their physical characteristics, insofar as one can generalize about such a large population, are always the same. Fierce-looking blue eyes, reddish hair, and big frames. Powerful in sudden exertions, but struggling with hard work. Least of all capable of sustaining thirst and heat. Cold and hunger, on the other hand, they are accustomed by their climate to endure well. 
As I mentioned, the Nazis clearly salivated when they read of Tacitus' notion of a pure race. This passage, this one that I just read to you, did more to form German ideas of a master race and Aryan superiority than probably anything else. To them, this was a call to a nostalgic past and some symbol of patriotic pride. In some way, I imagine Tacitus would have been really puzzled to know that his work would have such a huge impact on history almost 2,000 years after he wrote it. You know, the funny thing here is Tacitus had actually written this work. To, his main point was to use it to criticize his contemporary romance. He was going to use the Germans as some props in order to decry the declining morality of Tacitus' own compatriots. In several passages, Tacitus idealizes the Germans in a Dances with Wolves type of way. If you ever watch Kevin Costner's Oscar-winning film, Dances with Wolves, you probably know what I'm talking about. You know, the Costner movie presents a super idealized portrayal of Lakota culture. Tacitus did the same thing with Germans. And what both Costner and Tacitus did is clearly something people have done in many places and many time periods, which is to project one's hopes and dreams on some foreign population in order to criticize something they find lacking in their own cultures. Now, when people project their fears on foreigners, the result is usually some kind of ultra-racist stereotype telling us that those people out there are completely unlike us. And that clearly means they are lacking the benefits of civilization. And as such, they are terrible and evil. When people instead project their hopes and dreams on foreigners, they create what some scholars would refer to as the classic, quote-unquote, noble savage stereotype which is a sort of positive, romanticized stereotype telling us that those people out there are completely unlike us, and that clearly means that they are uncorrupted by the evils of civilization, living in some kind of primordial harmony. In this case, the so-called noble savages are used to remind one's audience of what the author's culture may once have shared with these people, but has since lost. So both the racist and the noble savage stereotypes don't deal with foreigners as flesh and blood human beings. You know, they are purely props for one's own fantasies. One set of fantasies is very negative and driven by fear, one set of fantasies, you know, driven by romanticism and some sometimes misguided hope. But it really boils down, they more have to do with how these people feel about their own culture than than these other people. And Tacitus was doing this very clearly in regards to Germanic peoples. Incidentally, in addition to over-romanticizing his subjects, Tacitus had gotten the whole racial purity part of the story really wrong. I mean, anyone who studies history and genetics for more than five minutes understands that there's really no such a thing as a pure race. You know, since the dawn of time, People have been migrating over massive distances. They have had sex with the people they run into, and they kept the gene flow moving. 
the Germanic tribes of Tacitus' times were not immune to this. You know, waves of migrations over the centuries and swept over the area of modern-day Germany. The result, of course, that genetically the Germans of Tacitus' tribes were fairly different from the Germans of 500 years earlier or 500 years later. In any case, with that aside, let's see what else Tacitus tells us about them. In terms of political system, Tacitus writes that their chiefs have to rely more on personal charisma rather than coercive power or lines of descent. He also adds that most adults, women included, have a voice in public assembly and that the tribes are quite sensitive about issues of personal freedom, as people in tribal cultures usually are. Here are Tacitus' words, he writes, The power even of the kings is not absolute or arbitrary. The commanders rely on example rather than on the authority of their rank, on the admiration they win by showing conspicuous energy and courage, and by pressing forward in front of their own troops. Capital punishment, imprisonment, or even flogging are allowed to nobody but the priests. Another characteristic that Tacitus attributes to Germanic tribesmen is hospitality. And again, that's a classic thing that you hear about tribal culture time and time again everywhere around the world. Here is what Tacitus writes. He says, It is accounted a sin to turn any man away from your door. The host welcomes his guest with the best meal, with the best meal that his means allow. When he has finished entertaining him, the host undertakes a fresh role. He walks the guest to the nearest house where further hospitality can be had. It makes no difference that they come uninvited. They are welcomed just as warmly. No distinction is ever made between acquaintance and stranger as far as the right to hospitality is concerned. Tacitus, we must remember, was a stern moralist frowning upon his fellow Romans enjoying sex out of marriage. I kind of picture him as the sort of guy who in between between yelling at the kids to stay away from his lawn and trying to find the best early bird special in town would say things like Back in my day, before the young people were corrupted by the sexual revolution, we had self-control and we knew how to keep our pants on. So in light of this, Tacitus praise to no end the Germanic sexual customs, which of course raised the question whether his description actually matched real Germanic sexual customs, or if he's making it up for the sake of having a counterexample to chastise his fellow Romans with. In any case, this is what Tacitus had to say on the topic. He wrote, No one in Germany finds vice amusing, or calls it up to date, to seduce and to be seduced. Even better is the practice of those states in which only virgins may marry, so that a woman who has once been a bride has finished with all such hopes and aspirations. Yeah, okay. Well, notice, by the way, how he goes from praising monogamy in general to quickly emphasizing monogamy for women. Classic. Absolute classic. In any case, speaking of women, Tacitus goes on to mention that how often women would um, 
go to the battlefield along with the men. And they would yell encouragement, and in some cases even going as far as killing the men if they were trying to flee a losing battle. One source I read said that if their men were scared, women would uncover their breasts and scream something like, this is what you're fighting for. Now, I'm not going to swear that that's 100% historically true, but I so badly want to believe it that I won't look in it too carefully. All I know is that as a, as a big fan of the glorious roundness of female breasts, that trick would totally work for me and would empower me to slaughter seven Roman legions single-handedly. But aside for that, here is what Tacitus writes. Close by them are their loved ones so that they can hear the screams of their womenfolk and the wailing of their children. The men revere them and yearn for their praise. It is to their mothers and wives that they go to have their wounds treated. And the women are not afraid to count and compare the cuts. The women also carry supplies of food to the fighters and encourage them. It stands on record that armies already wavering and on the point of collapse have been rallied by the women pleading heroically with their men, thrusting forward their bared bosoms and making them realize the imminent prospect of enslavement, a fate which the Germans fear more desperately for their women than for themselves. So you know I was just saying now, Tacitus, I'm not entirely sure if he's making it up or if he's on point regarding the sexual customs of Germanic people. Well, now that he's talking about the... What was this sentence? He said, uh, let's see, pleading heroically with their men, thrusting forward their bare bosoms. Now I stand 110% by Tacitus truth. I'm sure he's exactly accurate, just because it's too cool of a description. In any case, war was a rather big deal for the Germanic tribes. Sources tell us that they would leave half of the men to take care of farming and hunting and pastoralism and all the other things that needed to be done to make sure that everybody was well fed, while the other half would go to war every year. You know, in some tribes they went even so far, you know, they had such a warrior culture that they would go so far that regardless of your age, you are not really considered a man until you had killed somebody. Uh, Speaking of how they went about it, Germans mainly fought with spears and javelins. They had swords, but they weren't that common. You know, spears were... By far, the spear was the most common weapon of all. Uh, Partially because they did not have much access to good quality iron. So sometimes their spear points were just sharpened sticks, hardened on a fire, or they were just made with animal bones. Or if they did have some iron, they figured it would be a lot cheaper to just fashion a good spear point than to try to make a whole sword out of it. They would use shields that they painted. They mostly fought wearing pants, but probably no armor, sometimes with a helmet. As Tacitus puts it, for the Germans have no taste for peace. Renown is more easily won among dangers. The way to keep a large number of followers is by constantly leading them in war and violence. They're always making demands on the generosity of their chief asking for a coveted war horse or a spear stained with the blood of a defeated enemy. Their meals, 
for which plentiful, if homely fare is provided, count in lieu of pain. A leader affords his generosity thanks to plundering enemies. Germans are not so easily convinced to plow the land and wait patiently for harvest, as they are to challenge an enemy and run the risk to be wounded. They think it is weak and spiritless to earn by sweat what you might purchase with blood. Now, we told that I've been poking fun at Tacitus because, well, for very reason, but that's a great writing right there. You know, it's like... They think it is weak and spiritless to earn by sweat what they might purchase with blood. That's intense. Also remind me of Conan. Well, probably because everything reminds me of Conan. But in any case, it reminds me of a specific line from Robert E. Howard, Beyond the Black River. I quoted it in the past in some other episode, but this is a great one. One in which Conan says, I never planted wheat and never will, so long as there are other harvests to be reaped with the sword. Which sound, it sounds like after reading Tacitus, you kind of have to wonder if Robert E. Howard hadn't just finished reading it, because it sounds almost like a direct quotation from what we just went over. Tacitus also adds that when they were not busy with war, German warriors would either spend lots of time hunting or in a mix of eating, drinking, sleeping. That's one of the criticisms he actually has of Germanic culture, is they say they drink too much. He would say drinking bouts lasting all day and all night are not considered in any way disgraceful. Also not a big fan of the fact that, according to him, Germanic tribes would um, they would be completely addicted to gambling. They would even gamble away their freedom over a game of dice. Now, granted, their slavery was more like having to pay a tax of one's products to the person you lost your freedom to than actual slavery in the typical sense, or at least that's what Tacitus says, but still, it's kind of a big deal. Now, when we speak of war, we are speaking primarily of wars against one another. As I mentioned earlier, there was no national German identity, at least not back then. It was only tribal identity. So different Germanic tribes regularly killed one another with great enthusiasm, which led Tacitus to pray that they would always remain divided in this fashion. Again, we turn to Tacitus' words, Long, I pray, may foreign nations persist, if not in loving us, at least in hating one another. For destiny is driving our empire upon its appointed path, and fortune can bestow us no better gift than discord among our foes. As we continue this anthropological survey of Germanic culture, at least according to the sources we have, which is primarily Tacitus, in terms of religion, they worshipped a whole variety of gods, very similar to the same gods that will be worshipped by the Vikings centuries later. They had no churches, for the matter they hardly had temples, they had sacred groves instead. Like most practitioners of animistic religions, their places of worship were usually found in nature. As Tacitus writes, their holy places are woods and groves, and they apply the names of deities to the hidden presence 
which is seen only by the eye of reverence. It's probably for these reasons that Christians would later see forests as the places for pagans. You know, there's a direct association in so much of Christian history in seeing the woods as the domain of paganism. Martin of Tours, a patron saint of France, argued that the way to defeat paganism was by chopping down trees. Uh, even one of the biblical books, Deuteronomy, speaks of burning the groves of the pagans. In that sense, even the Puritans, when arriving in New England in the 1600s, would follow that advice and try to cut down forests, not only to make room for farms, I mean, that's a practical purpose, but also the mindset that doing so would take land away from what they perceived to be the forces of savagery and paganism and make instead room for Christianity and their version of civilization. For the Germanic tribes at this time, the forest was omnipresent throughout their lands. It was the place of the hunt, the place of war, the place for their religious rituals, the forest was home. It was an integral part of Germanic culture. Having said that, the last thing I want to touch on while taking this anthropological journey with Tacitus is how the Romans perceived the Germans. To the Romans, the Germans were both weird and terrifying. They often wore the skins of wild animals. Their light hair and great physical size were highly odd to the Romans. And so were their habits of drinking rivers of beer, putting butter in their hair, and going to battle with minimal armor. Tacitus again writes, They blackened their shields and dyed their bodies, and chose pitch-dark nights for their battles. The shadowy, awe-inspiring appearance of such a ghoulish army inspires mortal panic for no enemy can endure a sight so strange and hellish. Defeat in battle always begins with the eyes. And again, I can't help it. As much as I dislike Tacitus for being such a goody-goody stern moralist, some of his lines are just great. Defeat in battle always begins with the eyes. It's definitely one of them. Cavalry officer and historian Velleius Patercolos was considerably less kind in regard to Germanic peoples. He described them as, I quote, humans only in shape and speech. So yeah, he was not a big fan. If we skip from anthropology to history, the first major encounter between Germanic tribes and Roman civilization had happened when the tribes, known as the Cimbri and the Teutones, by the way, the pronunciation, some people pronounce it Cimbri, some people have already pronounced it in all sorts of ways. I have no idea what those guys pronounced it back then, so I'm taking a guess. I'm going by with the more Italianized pronunciation of this. Well, I guess you guys have figured out by now that I everything I say has an Italianized pronunciation, but in this case, even more so. So the tribes of the Cimbri and Teutones had decided to migrate the whole nations together, men, women, and children, as they took to the road in their carts with all their possessions in tow. The reason was probably overcrowding in their homelands in the north. And, you know, the classic bad mathematical equation that happens when population numbers are higher than available resources. 
And so what they did is they packed their stuff, their kids and their animals, and off they went in search of new lands. They weren't roaming bands of warriors looking for adventures. They were nations on the move looking for a homeland. They were moving south specifically, looking, well, first because there wasn't much north where you could go. They were already as far north as you could get. Also because they were looking for the luxuries that the warmer climates usually produce. Of course, they had no illusions that the people already living in the south would just move aside and say, Oh, poor dears, you're struggling and need new lands? Please, let us just give you ours so that you can settle. You know, they knew full well that finding a homeland is a nice way of saying something that would get really ugly, you know, because it would require the shedding of lots of blood, preferably as little of their blood as possible and as much as their enemy's blood as possible. They were armed and they were ready to try their luck against southern peoples. By the year 113 before Common Era, they crossed the Danube River and attacked the Celtic tribes who promptly asked for Rome's help. So a Roman army was sent after them and they actually managed to diplomatically convince these tribes to turn around and leave their allies in peace. Which sounds actually kind of like a miracle, you know, so everything works out, right? Well, yeah except for the Roman commander sent against them who decide to double-cross them after having convinced and set up an ambush for them. The Cimbri did not appreciate the treachery and proceeded to destroy the Roman army. Then they defeated another Roman army in Gaul, and in the following months and even years, defeats piled up one on top of another for the Romans. By the year 104 before Common Era, Rome was in the throngs of sheer desperation. You know, nothing and seemingly no one was able to stop the inexorable advance of these northern barbarians. To the Romans, the Cimbri and Teutones were demons spit out of some northern hell that undoubtedly existed outside the borders of the civilized world. In some of them, they just look weird to the Romans. Some of them were so blonde that they looked like they had white hair, even their children. They were gigantic in size, scary in looks. And worse yet, they had smashed legions left and right with repeated success that no one had had against Roman legions since the days of Hannibal. But just when they were ready to take over Italy and march on Rome, they had been distracted by rumors of Spanish wealth. So they had actually gone in that direction to loot the area of what would be modern-day Spain, thereby giving Romans a break, giving them two years to organize, and most importantly put a different kind of man in charge of the legions. Specifically, the man picked for the job after so many had been picked before him and had miserably lost was a guy named Gaius Marius one of the most brutally efficient men the Republic had ever produced. And the Republic had produced a lot of brutally efficient men. So the fact that this guy was at the top of the list, that tells you something. Upon their return, the Cimbrian Teutones had been kind of cocky when negotiating with Marius. 
And after all, it was hard to blame them, considering they had defeated time and time again the scariest military force in the Western world. You know, they had used their shields to snowboard naked in the snow in full view of Roman troops. Uh, when during a terrifying parade that lasted six days, such were their numbers, their entire nation marched right alongside the fort where Marius and his army were holed up. They mockingly asked the Roman soldiers if they had any messages for their wives in Rome, since they were on their way to seeing them. Unfortunately for the Cimbri and Teutones, they were being cocky with the wrong kind of man. By the time Marius would be done with them, they no longer existed as separate peoples. Marius crushed them in such a total and complete way that it is said that farmers in the areas where the final showdown had taken place enjoyed unusually productive harvests, thanks to all the blood that had fertilized the soil. You know, they had looked for land in the south, well now they have found a piece of it and would have it forever, since the south would be their tomb, and the tomb of their whole nation. Many of those who weren't killed in battle killed themselves in an act of mass suicide. Their women had stood by the edge of the battlefield, ready to kill their husbands, brothers or fathers if they gave in to terror and fled. But now that when they realized that it was all over, they strangled their own children, and threw their bodies under the wheels of their carts. Done these, they cut their own throats. Those who were not so hot about suicide ended up in slavery. So in demolishing these two nations, Marius had successfully exercised the Roman fear of the northerners. By the way, I should mention there's... Um, there's a series that Dan Carlin did in Hardcore History about the fall of the Roman Republic, where there's an episode dedicated to this story. And now that I think about it, this actually may have maybe the very first episodes of uh, Hardcore History I ever listened to. And, you know, Roman history for me, having grown up in Italy, having been big into history since I was a kid, it was one of the scenes that just shoved down your throat so many times that you know, after a while, you know it up and down, back and forth, every last little detail. So when I started listening to Dan covering the fall of the Roman Republic, that's when I realized what an incredible storyteller he is, because, you know, I would finish an episode and find myself at the edge of the seat thinking, what happens next? And then I would stop and I'm like, I know exactly what happens next. I know the whole story up and down, but he's just so good that he has me at the edge of a seat on a story where I already know the outcome, I already know every step in the way. So, you know, if you guys have the opportunity, check out Dan Carlin's, if I remember correctly, it's called Death Throws of the Republic. Incredible, one of, you know, incredible work by Dan, supremely good. In any case, around two of this German-Roman cultural exchange took place a few decades later when Julius Caesar was building his fame by conquering the Gauls in modern-day France. When Caesar was there in around the 50s before Common Era, the tribe of the Edui asked for his help against German invasions. The Edui's rivals, the Averni and Sequani, had made the mistake of asking for help from some tribes from across the Rhine, 
in order to defeat their enemies, the Edwi. German tribesmen from across the Rhine had only been way only too happy to oblige. Thousands of them crossed the Rhine and beat the Edwi. They get the job done. Problem is they immediately took over the territory of their former allies. So now that the same Gallic tribes who have invited them in are now asking for Rome's protection. And Caesar wrote about this. Gradually accustomed to inferiority and defeated in many battles, the the Gauls do not even pretend to compete with the Germans in bravery. The tribesmen in France, they told, well, modern-day France, because there was no France back then, but they told Roman soldiers stories about the Germans in such scary terms that all the soldiers began writing their wills. Many of Caesar's friends found excuses to leave the camp, but Caesar himself was not as easily intimidated. So he took a break from his genocide tour among the Gauls to deal with the pesky Germans. Caesar's army crushed the Germanic tribes and sent some of them packing back across the Rhine in an effort to avoid his wrath. But some of them remained, and they concentrated their forces in one enormous camp close to the river separating Germany from Gaul. Caesar's army was badly outnumbered, but they managed to catch the camp by surprise and slaughtered a whole bunch of them. Many more drowned trying to swim across the Rhine, this is how Caesar tells it. Now, before I read you the quote, just remember that Caesar was a big fan of speaking in the third person. So, armed with this knowledge, you don't need to be confused by this. It's like, hey, wasn't Caesar writing? Why is he talking about Caesar in the first person? Just because that's what Caesar does. And as tacky as weird as that is to do, hey, it's Caesar, so, you know, he can get away with it. So here we go with the passage from Caesar's writing. Our soldiers, angry by the Germans' betrayal of the preceding day, rushed into their camp. Those among them who could readily bear arms tried, for a short time, to fight against our men, and gave battle among their carts and baggage wagons. But the rest of the people, consisting of boys and women, for they had left their country and crossed the Rhine with all their families, they began to fly in all directions. But Caesar sent the cavalry after them. When the Germans saw that their families were being killed, they threw away their arms, abandoned their standards, and fled out of the camp. And when they arrived at the confluence of the Meuse and Rhine rivers, the survivors threw themselves into the river and there perished, overcome by fear, fatigue, and the violence of the stream. Our soldiers, after the alarm of so great a war, for the number of the enemy amounted to 430,000, returned to their camp, all safe to a man, very few even being wounded. Now, I don't know about the 430,000, you know, when it comes to numbers, people usually have a tendency to inflate the numbers of their enemies, but who knows, maybe it's correct, probably not, but moral of the story is a lot of people. The Germans had clearly suffered horrendous losses. You know, that murderous Roman bastard that wrecked havoc among them, killing thousands upon thousands of them. But at least the survivors felt safe on the eastern side of the Rhine. They knew that the river was a huge obstacle that the Romans would not be able to easily cross. 
The Rhine River, after all, that's a really big body of water. It was said to be about 400 yards across. Caesar, however, was determined to take away from them even that small consolation. They felt safe being at home on their side of the river. Caesar would say to that. The way he saw it, you don't get to defy Rome and never get to feel safe again. You either stop breathing or you could only continue to draw breath in fear of what Rome might do to you. Those were the only options that Caesar wanted to give them. Plus he wanted to show some support for the Ubians, an allied German tribe just across the border. Again, I'll let Caesar tell it in his own words. After the end of the battle with the Germans, Caesar felt there were several reasons why he should cross the Rhine. Most important among them was his desire to make the Germans scared in their own homes, so they would be less likely to choose to raid in Gaul once they found out that the Roman army could pass the river at will. Also, the cavalry of the Usipites and Tectenteri, I'm totally making it out the pronunciation because I have no idea, by the way, which I have above related to have crossed the Meuse for the purpose of plundering and procuring forage, had reorganized after the retreat of their countrymen into the territories of the Sicambri and united themselves to them. When Caesar sent ambassadors to them, to demand that they should give up to him those who had made war against him and against Gaul. They reply that the Rhine bounds the empire of the Roman people. If he did not think it was just for the Germans to pass over into Gaul against his consent, why did he claim that anything beyond the Rhine should be subject to his dominion or power? Now, just reading this passage, you can almost feel... Caesar's blood pressure rising. He's not the kind of guy to tolerate this kind of backtalk. And I was about to show them it was indeed a terrible, terrible idea to address him in this way. So Caesar continues. The Ubi, who alone out of all the nations lying beyond the Rhine had sent ambassadors to Caesar and formed an alliance and given hostages, asked, that he would bring them assistance because they were grievously oppressed by the Suevi, that they might be safe under the fame and friendship of the Roman people. They promised a large number of ships for transporting the enemy. Now, any other Roman commander intending to cross the Rhine would have taken that offer. You know, he would have put his troops on the boats and be done with it. You know, the Ubians, after all, had offered precisely this option. But you don't get to be Caesar by doing what anyone else would do. For some reason, he decided going by boat would not quite deliver the message he wanted delivered. It was not the kind of larger-than-life entrance into Germany that fit the status of a badass like him. Again, let's turn to Caesar's words. Caesar, for those reasons which I have mentioned, had resolved to cross the Rhine, but he considered crossing by ships neither sufficiently safe nor consistent with his own dignity or with the dignity of the Roman people. Therefore, even though he was told building a bridge would be very difficult because of the width, rapidity and depth of the river, he decided to try. Yeah, you heard right. Caesar decided to build a bridge 
where no reasonable person thought it could be done. And because Caesar didn't believe in half-hearted measure, he managed to get his soldiers to build this miracle of engineering in absolutely record time. As he tells, Within ten days after the timber began to be collected, the whole work was completed, and the whole army led over. The whole point of building the bridge was to deliver a message, and the message was, You think you're safe from us here? followed probably by a demonic laughter. Upon realizing that the Rhine was not the impenetrable barrier they had all hoped he would be, and seeing Caesar and his legions strolling across a giant bridge into their lands, quite a few Germanic tribesmen suddenly found themselves in dire need of adult diapers. Not being stupid, they understood it was time to hit the road in a hurry. Caesar again, writes. The Sigambri, at the very time the bridge was being built, made preparations to flee, abandoned their territories, took with them what they could, and ran off to hide in the woods. Even they understood that Gaius Julius Caesar was not the man you wanted angry at you. For the next two and a half weeks, Caesar and his guys roamed around Germany, burning and looting villages and destroying all the tribesmen fields and food supplies. And then, once they had their fun, Caesar and his boys returned to Gaul and cut down the bridge. This pulling off this amazing engineering feat, only to destroy it a few days later, was Caesar's equivalent of a Tibetan mandala. You know, in Tibetan Buddhism, Sorry if I make this weird comparison, but I kind of, I find it interesting in that sense. You know, in Tibetan Buddhism, you have, uh, there's this tradition where sometimes monks would spend days creating these amazing sand paintings, one little grain of colored sand at the time. It takes incredible patience, takes lots of time. They put together this unbelievably beautiful painting. And, you know, once it's done, the normal response at having created something so amazing is you'd want to preserve it. But that's not the way Tibetan Buddhism works. Instead, what you do is you look at it for a while, you enjoy it, and then you destroy it. You know, the point of it is to deliver home a lesson about living in the moment and accepting the transitory nature of existence. I seriously doubt that Caesar had such philosophical goals in mind. You know, building the bridge only to destroy it a few days later was his way to let the Germanic tribes know that he was a serious gangster, not one to mess with. He built the bridge because he could anytime he felt like it. He could destroy it, rebuild it. None of that was an obstacle. And now that the message had been delivered, he destroyed it just so that the Germans couldn't use it to cross into Gaul. So round two of this encounter with Rome had not gone super well for the Germanic tribes either. Lucky for them, in the following years, Romans were too busy killing each other in their civil wars to be bothered to pay much attention to what was going on in Germany. The most that happened was uh, the Romans creating a city for their allies, the Ubians, so that they could relocate across the Rhine into Gaul and act as a buffer against the more aggressive tribes. 
Uh, incidental, in case you happen to be from the city of Cologne, Germany, you may be interested to know that that's how your city came into being. During these years, sometimes Roman traders crossed the Rhine to do some business with the tribes, which was a bit of a risky proposition since it could lead to either making a lot of money, which is why people did it, or get murder, which was depending on the mood of the tribesmen and how satisfied they were with your business. The frontier in that sense was in some way much the, like the frontier that where the French traders, English traders and different native tribes met one another in North Americans in the 16 and 1700s. You know, here, like over there, that's by the way a period and a time place that I'm super fascinated by because there's a sense that nobody controls the frontier, nobody's the master of the frontier. You just have all this different culture meeting one another, making alliances, breaking alliances, trying to get the best deal possible and exchanging a whole bunch of cultural traits, exchanging DNA, exchanging swords to the guts, you know, the whole spectrum of human activity take place there, from sex to murder, from trade to friendship, breaking treaties, the whole thing. And in some way, this is what was going on in this area. You had, uh, you had the Romans, you had the Gauls, you had a whole variety of Germanic tribes. Things heated up a little bit at the end of the summer of 17 before Common Era, when an uprising broke out among the tribes of the Sugambri, Usipites, and Tencteri at the border of the Rhine. Not happy with all the Romans crossing into their territories, they arrested Roman citizens as illegal immigrants and crucified them. They then crossed the river and raided into Gaul. They also ambushed a Roman cavalry unit led by the legate Marcus Lollius, the commander of the armies in Gaul at this time. You know, Lollius had the reputation as a crook and apparently not a very good commander since the Germans managed to steal the eagle from his legions. As I mentioned earlier, but worth repeating again, the eagle was the standard that the legions would carry everywhere with them. You know, for a legion to lose their eagle standard was a complete disgrace. You know, the standard was supposed to embody the spirit of the legion and was treated with almost religious reverence. So losing an eagle was like the ultimate dishonor for the legion. Lollius tried to get over his disappointment over the embarrassing loss of the eagle, and prepared to attack them. So the tribes went back across the Rhine and sued for peace, giving hostages. In their minds, that was it. You know, crucify a few people, attack a Roman unit, say sorry, and be done with it. But of course, that's not how Rome saw it. The Romans used this attack as an excuse to, to declare war and cross the Rhine. Rome loved to perpetuate the illusion that they only fought in self-defense, which of course is a joke, because you don't get to build a gigantic empire on self-defense, right? I mean, it's obviously ridiculous, but that was the propaganda. Even a writer like Suetonius could write with no irony, no self-awareness, apparently, that Augustus, I quote, never invaded any country nor felt tempted to increase the empire's boundaries or enhance its military glory which of course is a joke, 
But the reality, of course, is that Rome had prepared for an invasion for a few years prior to this. But the 17 before Common Era raids provided the needed excuse. So preparations for war kicked into high gear. Eventually, a few years later, in the year 13 before Common Era, Drusus, the stepson of the emperor, was put in charge of the invasion. The army loved him. He was the brother of the future emperor Tiberius. He was the father of that same Germanicus we mentioned earlier in the episode. His wife was Antonia the Younger, who was the daughter of Mark Antony and Augustus' sister Octavia. In other words, Drusus was at the very top of Roman aristocracy. He had the bluest blue blood you could find. But he wasn't the kind of blue blood to sit back and lazily enjoy life in his villa, a destiny that the inhabitants of Germany would have much preferred for him. Drusus quickly got to work and beat down the same tribes that had raided in Gaul against Lollius. In 11 before Common Era, Drusus pushed through the Kerushis territory and pillage. On his way back, just as he was beginning to feel really good about himself, some German tribes decided his ego was getting out of hand and needed to be cut to size, preferably along with his body. And so they set up an ambush. Everything worked to perfection and the tribal warriors had uh, Drusus and his legions pinned just where they wanted them. But right when they had everything going their way, the tribesmen blew their chances with a disorganized straight charge, you know, precisely the kind of combat that Roman legions were very suited for. So after losing way too many men for their taste, the Germanic tribesmen were forced to see the Romans get out safely and escape the trap. Drusus returned home to Rome, where he was granted a triumph for his conquest. But life is often a game of reversals. You know, Drusus was at the height of his success and maybe he had not paid enough attention to the message that the slave had whispered in his ear during his triumph. Remember that you are immortal, was what slaves recited during triumphs to remind victorious commanders that they were not above it all, that they were still human, they, could, they were still mortal, they were not quite gods yet because the triumph was such a incredible ego boost that you could kind of make you forget that part. In any case, if Drusus needed a reminder, reality provided one. During yet another season of campaigning in Germany in the year 9 before Common Era, Drusus fell from his horse and broke his leg. Okay, that's clearly not good, but broken bones happen. Not fun, but not the end of the world either. Except that in this case he was, or at least it was the end of Drusus' permanence in the world. It seems like a poorly healed wound may have caused the gangrene to set in. And soon enough things began to look so bad that Drusus' brother Tiberius traveled in a hurry all the way to Germany. Valerius Maximus writes, Tiberius covered 200 miles through a barbaric country recently conquered, with his guide Antabagius as his sole companion and without a break. So despite the 200 miles of non-stop riding, Tiberius arrived only to see Drusus die in front of him. 
as I'm working on this story, I'm listening to Bruce Springsteen's The Ghost of Tonjod. So perhaps it's the music, or perhaps it's Bruce Springsteen's insane ability to put you in touch with melancholy. But picturing this guy riding like hell only to have his brother die in his arms strikes me as extra sad. Drusus was given a hero's funeral back home in Rome. Augustus was crushed because he had considered Drusus on the short list of possible successors. Jason Abdale, the author of the book Four Days in September, wrote about him. His accomplishments were impressive. He was the first Roman to navigate the shores of the North Sea. He conquered Western Germania, extending Rome's dominion from the Rhine to the Elbe. He ordered the construction of a series of forts, and interestingly, even canals which were named the Drusus Canals in his honor. He showed great determination and bravery in battle, often at great risk to his own life. Tiberius figured he couldn't bring his brother back from the dead, but at least he could kill some Germans for him. And so he did. He continued the campaign, burned and looted to his heart's content until he earned a triumph as well. In the following years, Romans played a game they were absolute masters of, which is divide and conquer within the tribes, giving some leaders wealth and privilege so that they would be inclined to support Roman policies against rivalry leaders. They would give them Roman rank and basically lure them into becoming dependent on them. Also, they attempted a spread in Roman cultures through things like public baths, pushing Latin language, you know, kind of trying to Romanize the tribes that had fallen under Rome's control. Tacitus writes, Step by step, they were led to things which disposed to vice, the lounge, the bath, the elegant banquet. All of these in their ignorance they call civilization, when it was but a part of their slavery. What Tacitus describes here is a kind of slavery with golden chains, you know, like the equivalent of bread and games for their own people back in Rome. You know, the idea is give them something that they can be happy with so they don't realize what they are losing. You know, slaves with, in modern day we would say slaves with cable TV. You know, and speaking of slaves, Roman slavery wasn't just metaphorical, so in addition to slowly coming to control an increasing number of German headmen through indirect means, Romans also established a lucrative trade with some Germans willing to sell them other Germans, you know, captives they had taken in war. So you had Germanic tribes capturing slaves, even more, I mean, they already did it before, but more so now when they could sell them to Roman traders for a good profit. So there were entire war operations and slave raids organized by one tribe just to make money on the trade much in the way as it would happen centuries later in West Africa. As slowly as the Romans were beginning to settle down and colonize the western part of Germany, you know, it was happening, it was happening very slowly, but it was happening. So a guy by the name of Lucius Domitius Ahenor Barbus was given the job of handling business in the Roman-controlled areas of Germany. Ahenobarbus had a reputation as a bloodthirsty psychopath. 
And considering that Roman culture seemed to be steeped in a borderline psychotic taste for violence, the fact that Ahenobarbus was considered too much even by his fellow Romans tells you a lot about the man. Either way, he didn't last long. After Ahenobarbus managed to upset local tribes with his bossy demeanor, he was replaced by Marcus Vinicius. But by then, several tribes had had enough of the Romans and were ready to rebel. This particular rebellion lasted from the year 1 to the year 4 Common Era. And it started in the way these things usually do, with the locals murdering a whole bunch of Roman traders visiting their lands. That was basically the German equivalent of the tribes telling Rome, hey guys, let this serve you as a notice that we are unhappy and we're not officially at war. Very little information on this exists, other than the fact that Tiberius was recalled to finish things off since Marcus Vinicius didn't seem to be able to. After the rebellion had been put down, by the year 6, Common Era, the Romans planning, they were planning a campaign against a guy named Marobodus, the king of the Marcomanni, who lived in the western half of the modern Czech Republic, who had defeated a bunch of other tribes and they had built a federation. You know, they were the Marcomanni were also a Germanic tribe living in there. Marobodus had given asylum to Roman outlaws escaping punishment by imperial authorities. And he was simply too powerful of a neighbor for Rome to breathe easy around him. You know, Roman traders had done business with him in the past and he didn't seem like he wanted to fight against Rome. But Rome just didn't feel safe with a huge army at its doorsteps. And so Rome was planning to do what Rome always did to powerful neighbors, which was to crush them and cut them down to size. Author Adrian Marduk writes, Although the official reason was that the king intended to attack the Danube frontier, the justification for war was quite simply the perennial Roman casus belli, that he existed. It's a powerful line and is pretty on the money. But right before the campaign against this guy was about to start, revolts broke out in Dalmatia and Pannonia, over Roman demands to draft the local men into the army. Also, as a Pannonian leader told Tiberius that they were revolting against the abuses of the Roman governor, he said, it's your fault. You send wolves to guard your sheep, not shepherds or dogs. Kind of a poetic way of putting it, but it was fairly common for governors to brutally rob provinces they were sent to rule, and it sounded like the current governor fit that profile. So the Romans quickly signed a peace treaty with Marobodus in order to focus on the Pannonian threat. Fighting to suppress rebellion continued for three years, and in the meantime, Augustus picked the men whose name you have heard at the beginning of this episode, Publius Quintilius Varus, as the man to handle Roman affairs in Germany. And given what you heard at the beginning of this episode, you probably have a sense where this story is going. So with that, our exploration of the historical background to it all is officially over. 
and we are about to jump into our main story. For the sake of breaking it down in manageable chunks, I will wait to start the story in part two of this episode. This is a two-part tale, so you don't have to wait long. Once the second episode is released, that wraps up the entire tale, because this is going to be a two-part story. And in the second part, we are going to find out what happens to Publius Quintilius Varus and his legions. We're going to be introduced to an iconic figure in German history, Arminius. And we're going to find out what happens when the Romans push too far and local tribesmen decide they had enough and this time rebellion is not going to be a half-hearted attempt. This time they're going to do it right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of History on Fire, which I would like to remind you is brought to you by Luminary Media.